In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. and welcome to episode 15 of Scottish Blethers with... I'm Liz. I'm Helen. And I'm Susan. In this episode, Liz, what are you going to be talking about? Well, I'm talking about our other national drink. I'm talking about Iron Brew. Helen, what about you? And I'm going to be talking about the health service in Scotland. And if you drink too much Iron Brew, you might need it. And I'm going to be talking about the Knights Templar. Helen, would you like to kick off and start us off today? Yes, well, I thought I'd look at the National Health Service, but it didn't suddenly appear from nothing in July 1948. It had its own strong and distinctively Scottish roots well before that. Something I found fascinating was that the Highlands and Islands Medical Service was formally set up in 1913, and medical and nursing services were virtually non-existent in the Highlands and Islands before that. Doctors struggled to make any living in such sparsely populated areas, but the state provided a house, a telephone, a car or motorboat to get around and cover for further study and holidays for the doctors. This service revolutionised care for more than 300,000 people. It was directly funded by the state and administered centrally by the Scottish office in Edinburgh, working with local committees. And remember, this is before the National Health Service. In 1933, the Cathcart Report recognised the vicious circle in which poverty begets disease and disease begets poverty and that housing, sanitation and environment were more important to health than standard medical interventions. The answer was to turn health around by investing in resources into making good health and well-being the everyday norm. It was to have a huge influence in framing the broad consensus that led to the Scottish National Health Service. In 1939, a state-funded hospital building programme began in Scotland. Seven new hospitals were constructed across Scotland, and even Gleneagles Hotel turned over to injured mine workers. But the expected air raid casualties did not materialise, but the new hospitals were put to good use. A new range of specialities were established, including orthopaedics, plastic surgery, eye surgery and neurosurgery as well as a pathology laboratory. In 1940, the Scottish National Blood Transfusion Association was set up, and in total, the emergency hospital service provided 20,000 extra beds. Nye Bevan was the charismatic Labour politician who created the National Health Service, and his vision for the NHS was for the whole of Britain, 
In three years, he succeeded in delivering a universal service for all people. The first year of the National Health Service provided the biggest single improvement in everyday health and well-being of the people of Scotland before or since. Scotland has long enriched the world of medicine. The Scottish Health Innovations Limited was established in 2002 and works alongside NHS boards to identify, protect and develop those ideas generated by the NHS employees that will improve patient care and provide financial benefits to NHS Scotland. The NHS is a great UK institution and it's there for everyone who needs it. It is funded by UK taxpayers and is free at the point of use. The NHS in Scotland is totally devolved to the Scottish Parliament and all policies and spending decisions are made in Scotland. It currently employs approximately 164,000 staff who work across 14 territorial NHS boards and seven national NHS boards and one public health body. The Scottish Government sets the national objectives and priorities for the NHS Scotland and health accounts for around 42% of the Scottish Government budget. And all NHS Scotland boards work closely with the integrated joint boards to oversee the way health and social care is planned and delivered so that we can ensure people have access to the services and support they need. So, ladies, I am probably only one of the three of us who has lived outside of the NHS before it started yeah, and still definitely. living yes you are <laughs> still living in the NH in the NHS so so tell me some of your experiences of the NHS in Scotland well i think when it works well at its best it is absolutely unrivaled when it comes to critical care when you get through to the level of consultant i think the problem with it is that very often the waiting lists are very long Mm. because of the demands that are made on it. And it's very much a current topic because one of the dangers of the pandemic is that um, the National Health Service gets overwhelmed. One of the things that we benefit from in Scotland is that we have one public health body covering the whole of Scotland. And then the rest of the UK, England and Wales, they privatise their public health body Whereas because Scotland had one, it was on the front foot when it came to bringing in to play all the the measures that they needed for COVID. A question I'm often asked is, but how do you access specialist care in Scotland? Unfortunately, I needed emergency care just a year and a half ago and I had fallen off a wall and broken my ankle and dislocated my foot, which was much fun. And I have to say the, the service I got was second to none. And I was straight into the accident and emergency and they brought in the consultant who was responsible for bones and things. He'd been out on a big long walk and he came in in the evening. This is about eight o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. And then I had a consultant all to myself. This is in the Western Isles. And they did a fantastic job of basically dealing with me in the space of 45 minutes. And my foot was put back into joint. I was plastered and I was in a hospital bed. And it all happened very quickly. So I think we have a great service there. Some people will say that the wait lists are too long, and they are for many mm-hmm. things like hips. You can be waiting a year. But I certainly couldn't see us doing without our National Health Service. I think we're very lucky to have the service that we've got. And I would just like to say a huge thank you to everybody that works within the National Health Service, particularly 
this year in the pandemic when they're going above and beyond and they're putting themselves in harm's way to try and look after everybody that gets sick. And of course, as we record this, it follows the day when Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, announced that all of the social care and health care staff would get an additional Christmas bonus of £500. Now, many are saying that that's not enough, that they need to be rewarded for the long term by pay increases. But it does give you an indication that Scotland does control its own budget when it comes to its National Health Service and health care provision. Reiterate what you're saying about the National Health staff at the moment, unbelievable. But in the budget, one of the things that Scotland decided to do was to give free prescriptions to everybody in Scotland, whereas in other parts of the UK, you have to pay for your prescriptions. And I must confess that I have mixed feelings about that one. I think it's tremendous that nobody is um, doesn't get the, the prescription or the drugs that they need because they can't afford it. But at the same time, there's no means testing. And so anybody, regardless of their level of wealth, gets free prescriptions. And I tend to find that people don't value the drugs in the same way as they do, even if they're just paying a nominal charge for their prescriptions. So people will go in, they'll get the medication and they'll say, oh, it's not going to do me any good anyway, so. It just sits there on the shelf. Yes, but one of the stories I heard, I don't know whether it's correct or not, that the cost of administering the free prescriptions and the non-free prescriptions was so prohibitive, it was actually cheaper to give everybody free prescriptions rather than charge some and not others. I think they've done the same in Wales now as well, that there are no prescription charges there. And I think it's a very difficult one because obviously as a devolved government, you only have a certain level of budget. And I think means testing would go some way to help pay for maybe other areas within the NHS that maybe could do with the money that people are not spending on uh, prescriptions. And of course, it's a priority for the Scottish government because unfortunately, Scotland has got a very poor record of health and life expectancy. And it ranges tremendously according to your postcode. So the difference in your life expectancy can be 10 years of a difference between the most affluent areas and the most disadvantaged areas. I think it's also about the postcode lottery as well. I know when my dad was ill, there was drugs that you could get in the Fife part of NHS Scotland, but you couldn't get them in Tayside. And we couldn't understand how he could go to these support groups And they were getting offered uh, specialist support and he couldn't get that within Tayside. So, you know, I I think there needs to be more effort across all the different local areas in terms of standardising what care is available. And I think if we started paying a bit more or started paying for our prescriptions, that might help give the health boards the means to be able to put that in place. Yeah, but I think it, it very often if you're in the area of a teaching hospital, you're, you're, you've got much greater access to research and to the drugs that are going on. And the only time that I've actually had a critical incident on tour, it was a, a woman who was married to a doctor, a physician from the States. And uh, we were in open when she started to feel unwell. And our, heart, our husband thought it was her heart. And he encouraged her to hang on, you know, to, to pull the emergency cord if she needed to, but hang on till they got back to Edinburgh because he been googling and he wanted her to go into an Edinburgh hospital but unfortunately on the morning that she got up to leave 
um, she felt really unwell and they had to get an ambulance, blue light flashing. And so when I eventually got to see her that morning, they let me straight into the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary into critical care. And she was sitting up in bed and she'd already been through a barrage of tests and they'd identified that she had a massive embolism on her lung, which had split up and travelled all over her body through her heart, damaged her heart. And so she was in critical care for six days and then into an ordinary ward and she calls it her alternative tour of Scotland because she learns so much and now we absolutely are ambassadors for the National Health Service so Pam if you ever listen to this I'm thinking of you. Well it's funny because I had a an incident where one of my tour members ended up in Raymore Hospital and I went to visit her and I think expecting her to be just really wondering what was going on but in actual fact she was just sitting up in bed She'd broken her leg. She said, Helen, I'm loving this. I'm in this ward. I'm getting to see all these. There's four other people in the ward. They're all talking to me. I don't understand a word they're saying, but they're so friendly and I'm seeing everything that's going on. If I was at home, I'd be in a beautiful private ward, but I wouldn't see anybody. And I think at this point we should point out that that as an international traveller, you are not covered. So if you need critical care, then you will be charged for it. But the the couple I was talking about expected it to be at least a six-figure sum Mm. um, for the care which he'd had, the drugs and the scans and all the rest of it. And they were absolutely amazed when they found out how, how small it was. But you need to have that covered just in case anything happens. Yeah. And talking about cover, uh, perhaps just before we finish up on the, the National Health Service and healthcare in Scotland, we should point out that private healthcare is also available. And a number of companies will put this in as part of their remuneration package. National health and private care are not exclusive, to, not mutually exclusive. Both coexist together quite happily. Well, I think uh, we've probably covered our National Health Service and in Scotland, and there's lots more we could talk about there. But uh, we're now going to move on to another area, very different, but bearing the same name, Knights Hospitallers, Knights Templars. Susan, do you want to tell us a little bit about this? Indeed. So I'm taking you back in the 1100s. And this was the Knights Templar that were charged with looking after the safety of the pilgrims going to the Holy Lands. And that was fine whilst they were doing a good job and whilst they were able to secure the roads and provide hospital services and things like that for these travellers. And as a matter of interest, you know, people, I don't know, you, you ladies will remember, other listeners might not, but I remember in the, in the 80s, when you travelled abroad, you would take your American Express traveller's checks with you. Well, traveller's checks are not a new thing, and they weren't even in the 80s either. They date back to the 11 and 1200s, when people would go off on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and of course, they didn't want to take bags of cash with them. So what did they do? They went to their local Knights Templar place, and they would pay their money over there. They would then get a letter, which they would take on their travels to the Holy Land, and they would be able to draw their money out once they got to the Holy Land, thus avoiding the issues of anybody stealing them on the way. So why do I bring up the Knights Templar? Well, has anybody read the books The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown or seen the film? I have. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. So yeah. where does it end up? 
Rosslyn Chapel. Indeed. So there are links in Scotland to the Knights Templar. And basically what happened was that in the 1200s, the Knights Templar were kind of kicked out the Holy Lands and there was a bit of a power struggle going on and they had vows of abstinence, of poverty, of chastity, but they also became very rich. And in Scotland alone, there was about 500 estates that were given to the Knights Templar. Wow. Indeed, you kind of go, really? And people would go off and they would go, you could either give yourself for life to the Knights Templar or you could say you were going to go for a number of years. So a good way to get in with God was to give your estate to the Knights Templar and then go off to the Holy Lands on pilgrimage or to, to help out. But by the end of the 1200s, there's this big power struggle going on and the Knights Templar had a lot of money. And of course, you know what money does. It makes people want it. And at the time, the French king was wanting it. And so he tried to have himself declared the head of the Order of the Knights Templar. It didn't work. So, of course, nobody likes to be spurned and he wanted some revenge. So what he did was he basically worked with the Pope to say that they were all devil worshippers and had them kicked out of France. And there was a big purge, but they'd seen this coming. And in the 1300s, early 1300s, there was only two countries that the Knights Templar could go to where they wouldn't necessarily be persecuted. One was Portugal, the other one was Scotland, because Scotland was at war with England. We also had a kind of a civil war going on, and the king at the time was Robert the Bruce. He had been excommunicated by the Pope because he had killed somebody on an altar in a church. And because he was... (laughs) There's been a murder, yeah, indeed. (laughs) And because he was excommunicated as king, the whole country was excommunicated. So it's thought that a lot of Knights Templar made their way to Scotland with some of the riches that they'd managed to pull out of France and infiltrated themselves into Robert the Bruce's army. Because suddenly Robert the Bruce goes from, you know, doing quite well against the English, he does not so well. He's kind of got the seesaw effect going on with winning and losing battles. Suddenly his army is being well equipped and they're being well trained. And it's thought that the Knights Templar were infiltrating his army and they were helping him to win. And certainly the Battle of Bannockburn was a resounding success against the English. There you go, the Knights Templar. After that, what happened to them? Well, they were kind of subsumed by the Hospitaller Knights and most of their lands moved into the Hospitaller Hands. You can still find places called Temple all across the UK. Uh, obviously, you've got Temple Lands in London, but you've got Ballantrodach just south of Edinburgh. You've got Roslyn Chapel, the Rose Line, and all the symbols that people think are to do with the Knights Templar as well. So it's really interesting for me to hear or to read about the Knights Templar. Yes, and I think at one time, Susan, correct me if I'm wrong, that the Knights Templar, actually, there were small countries in debt to all their money to the light the Knights Templar. They were so powerful. Indeed, and, and that's part of the power struggle, especially in France, because the French king did owe them a lot of money. Yeah. And didn't they own the island of Malta? I think they had that it was oh, their own island. Yeah, they could well have done because it's very much got that symbolism there, hasn't it? Yes. The Malta flag. There you have it. The Knights Templar, just really interesting. And it's when you start to go around places, there's places up near Aberdeen as well. You've got Mary Cooter 
up there. And there's lots of places that were once temple lands that had been given to them. And of course, everything round about Roslyn Chapel and the symbolism in the chapel, depending on who you talk to, some will say it's all to do with the Knights Templar. But it just gives you another element, another link to people that travelled all over the world and came back to Scotland. I would certainly recommend anybody to go and visit Roslyn Chapel. It's just such an enigma. I mean, there's um, carvings everywhere all over and they're, they're carvings of corn um, which could only have come from the Americas at a time when the chapel was built. They hadn't been discovered. So there's so many questions that it raises. Yes, and I think with Roslyn Chapel, it's just such a beautiful place. And of course, it was started by the Sinclairs to hope that if they built this beautiful big church, that they would have their place in heaven. But I think, was it the son or the grandson who decided enough money had been spent and just stopped the building there and then? What a shame, but it's still a beautiful building today. Oh, it's stunning. And of course, the other one that's maybe a bit closer to you ladies is Balgoni Castle in Fife. I know where you are, Susan. It's been interesting because this year of lockdown, when people have been out and about, I discovered it um, and discovered that the gardens were open. And then on Facebook, other people were discovering it as well. So yes, it's one definitely for a visit once yeah. we, we're able to. Yes, because their coat of arms has a Templar-style cross on it, and Raymond Morris of Balgoni is today's Grand Prior of the Grand Priory of Scots. Wow. Ah, right. Well, there's so a... much. Uh-huh. So I think that's enough in the Knights Templar. I've taken you back in history. Time to bring you bang up to speed with Liz. Okay, well, we could say that the, the Knights Templar were guards or garders. I'm moving to girders. Girders. Made in <laughs> Scotland <laughs> from girders. <laughs> Big yeah, my topic came to me when we were talking about what makes you Scottish a week or two ago. And today's emblem is an icon of Scottish identity. It's the number one soft drinks brand in Scotland, outselling Coke, Pepsi, 7up, Fanta and any other competitor that could come on the scene. It's taken on legendary importance, an icon of Scottishness known as our other national drink. It's, even the name is a test of how Scottish you are. Iron brew, you've got to roll your <laughs> R's. And it's one of the things that expats think of when they're asked, what do you miss most about Scotland? It's right up there alongside haggis and deep fried Mars bars. So what is it? Well, the official description is that it's a citrus flavoured fizzy drink with caffeine. But it's one of these things that you can't really explain. You've just got to experience it. First of all, there's its colour. It's bright orange. Some might even say rust colours, rust coloured, mm -hmm. giving rise to the theory that there's actually iron filings in the secret recipe. In reality, it's down to some pretty controversial red and yellow food colourings, along with 32 flavouring agents, high sugar content and caffeine. We're not talking about a health drink here. It's a good job we were talking about the health service before it. Yes. <laughs> and then there's the taste. What does it taste like? Well, it's unique. You expect with the orange colour that it'll have a citrusy taste, a fruity taste. Some think it's like bubble gum. It's impossible to describe. It just is. The dominant flavour is actually banana. But to be honest, people aren't really drinking it because of the taste. Perhaps it's down to its reputation as a great hangover cure. But more likely, it's just down to the phenomenal marketing that's always been associated with Iron Brew. 
At the end of the 19th century, the population of Scotland's industrial towns was growing, leading to inadequate sanitation and poor quality drinking water. Aerated waters became popular, and just like blended whisky, they were mixed by grocers and bottling companies to secret recipes. Syrups were created from fruit essences to which carbonated water was added to make the fizzy drink. The family business of Robert Barr was initially involved in cork cutting, but in 1875 they saw their opportunity and started producing aerated water. Iron Brew was a generic name for a drink originally produced in the States, which spread across to the UK, and the break for Robert Barr and Sons came in 1901. Work was underway to construct Central Station in Glasgow, and this involved hot, thirsty labour, leading to concern that the construction workers were consuming too much beer. Through their already established links with India, the bar set out to create a tonic-like drink containing quinine and other exotic ingredients. To this day, the secret recipe written down at the beginning of the 20th century is known only to the former chairman, Robin Barr, his daughter, Julia, and one other member of the board of directors whose identity remains confidential. (laughs) It's just like Coca-Cola, the secret (laughs) recipe. They sold their soft drinks to the thirsty steel workers and it not only quenched their thirst but kept them sober and the high levels of caffeine also gave them a boost to get them through a hard day's graft. Right from the outset, the bars recognised the importance of advertising and what today we would call brand recognition. Their earliest adverts featured world champion wrestlers and Highland Games athletes who endorsed the Iron Brew with their personal testimonials. But they were still only one of many soft drinks companies producing Iron Brew and they saw the opportunity to differentiate themselves in 1948 when the government of the day were introducing new labelling restrictions to halt the growth of spurious health claims. They required that all brand names were literally true, and although it was claimed that there were traces of iron in the mix, it certainly wasn't brewed. So the bar seized the commercial opportunity and not only changed the name from brew, B-R-E-W, to B-R-U, but they also changed the iron to I-R-N. A national treasure was born. They had a legally protected brand identity and since then their advertising campaigns have become legendary. It's called Our Other National Drink, made from girders. This was an advert that ran from the 70s to the 80s and it remains the most popular advert of all time in Scotland, winning numerous awards including Best Advertising Strapline of the Last 21 Years. Since 1944, the advertising account has been held by the Leith Advertising Agent in agency in Edinburgh, and they've deliberately cultivated an irreverent, maverick approach with campaigns that are rooted in the Scottish sense of humour. It's like a a peep show, an old-fashioned peep show. You know it's naughty, but you can't help having a look and a titter. Billboards generate thousands of complaints, and some adverts are banned before they even reach the TV screens. Of course, all this does is to drive their audience to YouTube, And the brand just keeps growing stronger and stronger. So, ladies, let's get down to... We might be taking off the airwaves here when we start to discuss Iron Brew adverts. Do you remember back to the year 2000, one of their first controversial ones, when there was a grandfather sitting with his grandson and his grandson had a can of Iron Brew? 
And the grandfather said, "Gives us soup. Give us, give, gives a drink of your iron brew." And the wee boy wouldn't, but eventually he gives his grandfather a soup of his iron brew. And the grandfather takes out his false teeth Jesus. and slurps his way through the can, and then hands it back to the wee boy who says, "No, thank you. He didn't no, want it back again." <laughs> so that's the sort of level we're talking about. Now I'll come back to more of them to discuss, but I'll just finish with the one that's perhaps most famous nowadays. And people might remember The Snowman by Raymond Briggs and the animated film that came from that. Well, Iron Brew developed alternative lyrics to the same soundtrack, Walking <laughs> in the Air, and they had the snowman flying over all the iconic landmarks of Scotland. And the, the snowman keeps on asking the wee boy for a drink of his Iron Brew, and eventually he won't give it. And so eventually the snowman lets go of his hand and the wee boy falls to earth. But even there, Iron Brew and Bars didn't get away with it. They had to make sure that the wee boy had a soft landing in some snow and was it was shown that there were no little boys harmed in the making of this advert. Yeah. <laughs> I remember both of these. They were great. <laughs> and, and you remember, Susan, from the Iron Brew advert? They, they have so many good ones. I mean, their posters are brilliant. There's, If you can imagine a picture from the 1920s of two ladies talking to each other and one's whispering in the other one's ear, and it go, it's got a quote saying, he goes like a rocket, now he drinks Iron Brew. You know, you're just like, how can you get away with that, even in this day and age? I mean, there's another one. There's a a father figure reading a story, bedtime story to his daughter. And it's again, it's back to those kind of 1950s black and white images. And it says, and the wolf said, whoever drinks daddy's iron brew gets their arms ripped off. <laughs> it gets even edgier than that. You can imagine being a vegetarian and come uh, across a billboard which is advertising the the new campaign for Iron Brew, and it's got a beautiful cow with the slogan next to it: "When I'm a burger, I want to be washed down with Iron Brew." <laughs> and they didn't just do cows; they did a little chick. And uh, uh, this oh, is that's, a, I was getting near to the bone now, Susan. What <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to say it. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, so there's a little photo of a chicken next to it. There's nothing better than iron brew when you've just been laid. <laughs> I mean, they're very good. They're very clever. They are very clever. They, they're always trying to do a tongue-in-cheek jibe at, of course, Coca-Cola. So that's why they introduced the snowman advert at Christmas time, because it's not Christmas until you've seen the Iron Brew advert, which is a play on the, the Coca-Cola advert. But also they did the one, I don't know if you remember it, where they did the Iron Brew musical at Ochendukit Senior High School, which was a play on Glee, of course. And, Glee, yes. and the theme was it's fizzy it's ginger it's phenomenal and from out of that came the idea that coke were talking about the named campaign and so they started bringing in all the scottish names like tam and senga and brab when coca-cola were putting the names on the bottles yeah it was interesting because coca-cola really got quite upset that iron brew was doing so well in scotland and they at one time i think it was about the 90s they put these coca-cola vending machines into anywhere they could, colleges, schools, thinking that that would get people buying their Coca-Cola rather than the iron brew. But people were bypassing them and just going to the counter for their iron brew. And eventually, Coca-Cola had to kind of give in. And these, these vending machines were filled up with iron brew. 
Yep. But in my time, and you'll remember this as well, Helen, it wasn't cans. We got the glass bottles yes. from bars with the American cream soda and the iron brew and all of that. And it was called the glass check because um, when they first started to produce glass bottles and uh, siphons, bars would put a deposit on the bottle. Yes. And when you took it back, you got your money back. So as kids, we used to gather up all the glass bottles and go and get some deposits to eke out our pocket money. Gotcha. Yeah. The glass check. The, the, the fizzy the fizzy pop bottles that you would always take back for the money. Yeah. yeah. And you didn't see any broken glass lying around the streets in those days and no empty bottles. They were all yep. back at the shop. They stopped it because they reckoned that so many people were recycling bottles nowadays that it wasn't yes. economically viable. So they've they've um, we still do get glass bottles, but mostly cans and plastic bottles. So a wee story for you about Iron Brew in Bermuda. I've got a few friends here that are Scottish, funnily enough, and basically they still import iron brew to Bermuda, which is a good thing. And after they changed the formulation, which was hugely controversial, basically reducing the sugar content, well, the original iron brew was still being shipped into Bermuda. So people here were stockpiling original formulation (laughs) iron brew. And even today, when the new formulation comes in, the guy, the buyer at the supermarket doesn't even bother putting it on the shelves. He just phones around all the Scots they know and they buy it by the caseload. So it goes straight out the back door without even hitting the shelves. It's fabulous. I think think that's part of the reason why it's so successful is because of its Scottish identity. In England, it only makes up about 3% of of the soft drinks market. So it is something that is rooted in Scotland and that's why it's successful. I remember a number of years ago, my son was having New Year down in England and he phoned up on New Year's Day. My daughter was there and some of her friends. I said, oh, the boys are just in at the Iron Brew and Alistair down in England said, oh, mum, they don't have iron brew down here and I really need it now from a hangover. (laughs) It is a fabulous hangover cure, having had it once or twice myself. Well, that leads me into word of the day. I'll kick this one off, ladies, because I have to follow on from iron brew because in Scotland, the country is divided as to what we call soft drinks. Now, part of the country will call any soft drink, any fizzy drink, juice the fact mm-hmm. that it's not anything remotely near any fruit yes. juice, it's just juice. It's just the generic name for a soft drink is, I'm going for a drink of juice. On the west That's of right. Scotland, it's not juice. What do they call it on the west? Ginger. Ginger. Fizzy pop as well. Fizzy pop as well. Maybe that's a Perthshire thing. I think so, because I think that's maybe a, a posh thing, Susan. I think you're showing your ah, right, right. here. Right, because <laughs> in, on the west of Scotland, it's ginger. On the west of Scotland, they tend to run words together. For example, give me a would become giza, giza, giza. Right? And instead of saying a drink of, we would say, give me a swallow. Giza swally. Giza swally. A year ginger. So when you're asking somebody for a drink of their iron brew, you might say, gonna giza swally a year ginger. And they always add some sort of description on. So gonna giza swally a year ginger, wee man. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's said to be derived from ginger beer, but I, I doubt that one. Okay, Susan, what's your word of the week? Well, I'm going to go back to my Knights Templar, and they would be protecting the travellers, the pilgrims in the Middle East. And 
if they got into a bit of a fight, they would get into a bit of a stushy or a rammy. <laughs> so a stushy is is more a bit of a, a bit of a to do. Uh, a rammy is more likely to be more fisticuffs. Uh, yeah, fisticuffs. So you've got a yeah. stushy and a rammy. Very descriptive. Helen? Well, I'm going to go back to the health service and you have to use the health service if you're feeling affy knee wheel. Meaning you're not not feeling very real, you're affy knee wheel. Which brings back one of the other words we used. You're looking at affy peely wally. <laughs> yeah, that was a few few episodes ago. Yes. And the, the other thing that perhaps we should say that very often in Scotland, the hospital is known as the infirmary. Mm, yes. But Affy Knee Wheel. Okay, ladies, well, thank you very much for your time. And we shall get together again soon. Look forward to it. There we have it, our blether for this week. If you'd like to engage with us on social media, everybody out there, um, we're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as Scottish Blethers. We'd love to hear what you think of the episode and any topics that you might like us to cover in the f- in future Blethers. So please do get in touch. So it's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye.